Hey everybody, welcome into show notes. Hanging here with 99. What up, 99? Not much. How's your back today? Um, well, I've been carrying this work, so. <laughs> I'm not heavy. I'm your brother. Is that a reference? He ain't heavy. He's my brother. No? No. <gasps> really? I think so. Oh, wow. It might just be your poor rendition. Could be. I don't know what it is, though. Oh, wow. Well, hopefully Manny Faces interjects and plays a little clip of that. Are you what a great tell song. me, though? Uh, I don't know who originally recorded it. He Ain't Heavy. He's my brother. He Ain't Heavy. By the Hollies. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah? No? He ain't heavy. He's my brother. So we go. So, your back hurt. We have some listener. We have one listener who recommended something. Uh, we'll get to that uh, as well. But uh, what are we doing here? What are we doing to to fix that? Well, definitely going to like three concerts in a row this weekend didn't help me. Mm. So I think it's at this point it's my fault. Okay. Yeah. A lot of standing. Yeah. It's like the worst thing. Yeah. Okay. So. Okay. Cool. But and carrying them- the weight of this show and all of your work life responsibilities and. The world, really. Mm-hmm. The weight of the world on your shoulders. One of the shows was Taylor Swift. What? Oh, how broke are you? Beers were $18. Whoa. Yeah, for like a, a 12-ounce Bud Light. Whoa. In a, in a bottle. You drink Bud Light? Those well, I- fascists? Bud Light and Anheuser-Busch. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't even thinking about supporting, you know, being an ally, but... It was the rain show, so if you, I mean, you probably didn't hear about it, but she, it poured rain for three and a half hours, but rain shows are special, so it's okay, but I figured anything in a bottle would be better, because, Mm. and my, plus if I'm, like, dancing, then the cup's gonna slosh around, so it's either Bud Light or Michelob Ultra, so I went with a Bud Light. I'd rather take a gummy and just chill out than drink Bud. I don't want to be high at a, at a Taylor show. <laughs> no? Not the experience I want. No. Oh. Okay. You, you want uppers, not downers. Okay. All right. I mean, alcohol is a downer, technically. Yeah. But right. it makes you feel up sometimes. Okay. All right. Um, was she great? Mm-hmm. She played for three hours? Did she, did three she still have half. openers? Yes. Um, I missed them, though. <laughs> okay. Do do. Uh, traffic that was um, some of the worst I've ever sat in. Took maybe six hours to get there. Was it in Jersey? Massachusetts. Ooh. Oh, man. Yeah. I took Sorry. a nap and I woke up and <laughs> the time had gone up the, enti- the the duration of my nap. And I was like, I was trying to sleep so we'd be there quicker. And now, you know, but mm. um, yeah, I missed the openers, which was fine. I didn't really care. But yeah, she played from like 8 to 1130. That's awesome. Yeah. That's pretty great. Yeah, she is. Uh, She's a force. It's true. Did you see that clip that's circulating now? It might, maybe it's an old clip that circulated as part of. Was there a documentary on her yes. during the Trump campaign? Uh, that yeah. Happened to be during the Trump campaign. Mm-hmm. And her coming out very and arguing with all of her managers, parents, handlers, and everybody in the room, and being like, "Sorry, I'm going to speak out against him." Yeah, 
It wasn't Trump. It was someone running in Tennessee. Oh, that's right, too. Yeah. That's right. It was uh, the governor there or maybe yeah, a senator who whoever, like, had her number. She won, I think, whoever it was. Yeah. I don't remember her name. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> people definitely criticize her for being being performatively an activist, which there she is. She looked pretty authentically upset in that video. I, I think she was. I just think, like, <laughs> her world is so different that she can't continue to operate in the same way as us. So it's mm. like she just doesn't have the time or energy to, to like campaign and do like campaign against things. Which I'm not saying is right. Imagine you know. if she was as big as Michael Jackson. <sighs> well, I don't have to imagine <laughs> because it's literally true. It's Whee. true. Uh, on the Bud Light note, I got a message from my uh, friend of mine who runs a, a pretty large food and beverage operation. And um, we are not necessarily politically aligned. I would say that he is he falls much more into the libertarian camp, let's just say. But anyway, he he was frustrated because, you know, when you run a, uh, a facility, you have certain items in stock. You know, so if somebody orders a particular package, you get the well liquor, you get this type of beer, you get this type of wine, you get served the house stuff. And if it's like for a catering event, unless you're doing something a la carte. And he was frustrated because the cops in his area booked a huge event there and wrote into the contract that you can't serve any Budweiser products because they support transgenderism. Mm. Nice, right? Yeah, but they probably didn't realize that everything else they were drinking, they didn't specify uh, AB in, no AB InBev products. So right. it was just probably Bud and Budweiser and any derivatives of light. How douchey is that, though? So, of course it is. But everything... I guarantee any any domestic they were drinking is probably just also owned by them. Yeah, absolutely. So. But how intolerable is their snowflake attitude in life? It just, I mean, well done. They'll, Great job, bro. They'll never uh, see no the Bud irony. Light. No, I guess not. It's just completely lost on them. All right. Well, we have our uh, socialism series beginning in earnest. I don't know if it's going to drop Saturday or if it's going to drop Sunday. Because it's a little bit of a monster, it might it might uh, give some, not technical challenges, but it might uh, just give some challenges to uh, the great Manny Faces. And I'm running a day behind on actually recording it. So socialism is going to kick off. So that much I can promise. And it'll be on the weekend. Just not sure if it's going to be Saturday or Sunday. So far, I have it designed in four parts. We'll see how that goes. It might be four parts plus an epilogue. We're going to talk about that at the beginning of the first show. The first one's going to be more level setting, more historical, and uh, to talk about sort of the evolution of it. Then after that, we're going to get into some key figures of socialism throughout um, the last 250 years or so, what it portends for the future. We're going to do an episode specifically on American socialism uh, and sort of the arc of socialism going from pretty broad acceptance in the beginning stages here at the turn of the 20th century to being absolutely demonized and vilified to the, again, just the beginning of acceptance in our culture today, beginning mostly with the millennial generation led by the Bernie revolution, stuff like that. And then, you know, some other stuff along the way. We've gotten some great feedback from listeners and viewers who are participating in our little community tab on YouTube. If you haven't gone to the community tab, engage with us there. Uh, that's where you can, you know, respond to us and leave us some sort of recommendations. The call that we put out 
on our Facebook group and the call we put out on the YouTube community tab was to give us some examples of how you would describe socialism to a young person. And by a young person, I don't mean like to a five-year-old. I mean to somebody that's just sort of beginning their learning journey and doesn't have a lot of, let's say, experience being inculcated by the media, by maybe their their parents or teachers or education or whatever, in one direction or the other. So people at their formative stages are beginning to think about that and how they would describe it in succinct terms. We've gotten some really, really interesting responses. Uh, and actually Manny 99 and I are going to begin with that in the first episode to sort of give you some, some of the great, first of all, very intelligent, very insightful, very direct and succinct responses that paint the picture of how difficult this is to actually describe. So that's coming up. Uh, remember if you are not subscribed to our newsletter, please do so. The newsletter is growing rapidly and we're trying to put out some really, uh, great content that picks all of the pieces of everything we do together, puts it in one spot for you. Also, that's where we offer discount codes to the coffee, to the merchandise and stuff like that uh, periodically. So make sure you check that out. Subscribe to the newsletter. And uh, of course, we are funded strictly by either purchases or donations or uh, getting affiliate deals, maybe from our bookshop, but primarily from the memberships that people take out. So the only reason we can do the voodoo that we do is because you have done it so well and treated us so well by taking out memberships. Thank you to everybody who has done that, who is in the fold, who is a true unfucker, no matter where you are. Appreciate that. So with that, why don't we get into some headlines? Any notes that you need to convey to the unfuckers before we begin? Nope, all good. Okay. Uh, per 99 suggestion after the show last time, I'm going to cut down headlines a little bit. Uh, and I'm focusing on two specifically. The first is about Barbara Lee. So... Barbara Lee, you might remember, is the congressperson out of California who was the only person in Congress to vote against the authorization for the Iraq war. So she, uh, oh, excuse me, not the Iraq war. She was vehemently opposed to the Iraq war. She was against the authorization for unilateral force the uh, on for the executive branch and said that, that it would lead to all sorts of terrible and unintended, or were they, consequences with the increasing of the surveillance state, warrantless wiretaps, encroachment on our civil liberties, too much authority given for war powers to the executive branch without congressional oversight. It was a really seminal moment because she was the only one, the only one in Congress at a moment when the, the entire country, I think was reflective of the 344 votes that went for it because we were in such a state of um, of despair post 9-11. The courage and the strength that she displayed at that moment, I think is not only just of historical note, but is one of the most significant examples of political courage that we've ever seen in the Republic. So she has announced her candidacy for Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat, whether that comes available because she decides to resign, in which case Gavin Newsom would have the ability to once again be a monarch maker and appoint somebody for that position. Or if she decides to, as it seems like she's going to, continue her term. Although, I thought you were going to say die. <laughs> maybe, maybe die. It's like, I don't think she's going to decide she may be dead. to die. You know? She may already be there. I don't know. She, it's like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi are pulling a weekend at Bernie's with her. I don't know what's going on. But you have three 
I mean, pretty big time, two big time Democrats plus Barbara Lee vying for that role that have announced their candidacy should Feinstein continue her term. She has said, obviously, she's going to vacate in and, and finally retire, but that's not until 2024. So Barbara is running against, in theory, Katie Porter, whom I absolutely adore and think would be a wonderful, wonderful senator, and Adam Schiff, who... Adam Schiff is probably one of the most intelligent and well-educated members of Congress. He's a lightning rod at the same time. I don't think that's through any fault of his own. I don't love him as much as Katie Porter, and I don't love either of them as much as I do Barbara Lee. And I think the one thing that we can be sure of is that we do not need another white dude in the Senate. Remember, these are six-year terms, and, the, and most of them are reelected when they, you know, when they run. So I, not that there's an order to things, but I mean, come on. If Katie Porter ran successfully to win the nomination, I wouldn't be upset. And Gavin Newsom had actually said, he's on record saying a while back, which he has not mentioned recently, that if he was ever in the position again to appoint uh, a Senator for California, he would appoint a black woman or a woman of color, I should say. So now you have a woman of color who has said, I'm, I'm right here, I'm, you know, I've announced my candidacy and should the opportunity arise, I'd like to be that person. And now Newsom is suddenly mum on the subject because obviously the forces, my guess is the forces are aligning pretty much around Schiff. Katie Porter is much less controllable and much less of the establishment and she is a, a devout progressive for sure. So I'm not sure that she would be as controllable by the establishment, so I'm, I'm guessing that Schiff would be their person. But I mean, come on. So the biggest challenge that Barbara Lee has, and this is kind of what I wanted to highlight here, is uh, there's a, a great article by um, USC Annenberg School of Journalism that talked about the fundraising gap between Lee and Porter and especially Schiff. It's, I think they approximated that the Senate campaign in California is gonna be something in the order of like $9.3 million. That's the average. And so you can imagine it might be, you know, let's say $10 million. And Barbara Lee is not a fundraising machine. First of all, she spends a lot of time legislating. Thank you. Uh, second of all, she's in a very, very comfortably blue district in California. She's held the position for about 25 years uh, and has never really needed to hop on the fundraising bandwagon because she has been pretty secure. So she's starting from a place uh, much further behind the other two candidates who are and who have been machines because the RNC has targeted them so aggressively in, you know, each one of their campaigns. Uh, and remember, Katie Porter, I mean, Katie Porter only won by a hair the last election. So that was um, that was that was pretty tough stuff. So there's so many things moving here. You've got Feinstein, who by I think any rational measure should retire, which would leave about 18 months or so of somebody sitting in that spot before the election. That's enough to have the power of incumbency. That is a significant leg up, being in the spotlight, getting access to all of the resources of the Senate, being more, way more visible on the national stage and from California as well. So, you know, the power of incumbency is not to be diminished in this particular scenario. The other piece of it is that, you know, even if she goes to the full term, which would be kind of madness, you have to imagine that it's going to be difficult for any of the Democrats in that position to run 
because of the deadlock that we're experiencing because of Feinstein's decline. So there's there's a lot there's a lot in the mix here. There's a lot of play. It, it's amazing to me that Newsom is going to get a second crack at this if Feinstein retires and have the ability to appoint yet another uh, federal senator, which is just astounding. And I obviously hate the idea of him uh, rising in prominence because I think he is a disingenuous son of a bitch. And I don't like the fact that he's getting more attention on him. We did that episode a while back about him running against, um, I think Larry Elder was the number one contender. There was a bunch of people running against him when they had the recall vote. But uh, Larry Elder, I think, is one of them. And now Larry Elder has announced his campaign for presidency. So... Lots going on there. It's uh, two articles to link to. The one is from the Annenberg School of Journalism. And the other one is actually a pretty good explainer from the LA Times that talks about uh, how this actually can unfold and would unfold in the different circumstances that we just discussed. And now, the second headline is not a headline, but once again, a recommendation for a podcast. Last time we talked about Jen Briney's uh, Congressional Dish, which uh, interviewed Maya, Dr. Maya Kornberg who wrote an amazing book all about the procedural aspects of the committees in Congress, which was, uh, I think, an important take for so many of us that are curious about the legislative process and don't really understand it at a very deep level. So that was a great episode. I hope everybody checked it out. And if you're not subscribed to Congressional Dish, please do so. Uh, and I've got no you know, stake in that. I don't know Jen Briney. I'm just a huge fan. This one is uh, somebody that I am a huge fan of and uh, knew a little bit you know, and, and and met a few times in the past, and that is Abby Martin's Media Roots Radio podcast. Abby Martin and her brother, Robbie, have been hosting this, I think, since about 2010. So Media Roots is they get together periodically to do deep dives into conspiracy theories, uh, you know, bad actors on the national and international stage, some foreign affairs and more. Abby is still producing the Empire Files. If you are not following Empire Files on YouTube, Facebook, a few other avenues that she puts out there, absolutely do so. All of her stuff, I believe, from RT has been taken down, so that no longer exists. You can't check that out, which kind of sucks because she had a huge, huge back catalog of work that she had uh, done there. But the stuff that she's done at Empire Files is terrific. Now, on Media Roots, they have a two-part series that they just released. I'm linking to their Apple podcast feed, by the way, because their website seems to be pretty out of date. Um, and, or if you want, just go to your podcast app and search for Media Roots Radio. You can search for Abby Martin or Robbie Martin, and either one of those will come up as well. And this is, this deep dive is into Tucker Carlson. And I got to tell you, for all the, like the stuff that I thought I knew about Tucker, there is some astonishing revelations in there. First of all, about like his father's ties to the intelligence community, which I really didn't understand that deeply. Uh, how they came about their money. Uh, Tucker married into it and now is a self-proclaimed trust fund baby with multiple trusts and a millionaire, so he considers himself untouchable. But here's some of the things that they highlight, which which is kind of amazing. Excerpts of Tucker saying he wants to, be, so not just like being quoted or something he was written down, actually going into the archives and getting him with recorded statements saying things like, I want to build an empire on the skulls of dead Chinese people. And that the U.S. has the moral authority to invade any country that they want, especially Islamic ones, because if you're Islamic, I hate you. And there's nothing you can do to convince me otherwise. So we have the moral authority to basically overthrow any nation. That's, that's Tucker Carlson. 
So in part one, they go through like the mean side of Tucker and his growth and evolution and how he became who he is. And in the second episode, they really go a lot deeper into a little bit more conspiratorial in, in terms of how he developed his worldview, but basically talk about how he really had a front row seat and in some cases was actually in the performance of the neocons who were designing the project for a new American century. How he worked alongside them, how his father had very deep ties to them, and how he is as much responsible for promoting and maybe partially responsible for architecting what our propaganda rollout would be to justify the invasion in Iraq. The reason it's important that they're going back and doing all this now is because Tucker's out of a job and he is now restyling himself as somebody who is a classic libertarian from a foreign policy perspective, which means he's an isolationist, which means he really doesn't want to go to war with anybody that's not at war with us. He could care less, you know, see Russia v. Ukraine. There were also uh, people that have uh, criticized him for being a Russian operative in the past. I mean, there's just there's so much deep stuff that's in there. It's it's kind of mind blowing. But he's trying to, again, now self-style himself more in the Matt Taibbi, Glenn Greenwald space of being that isolationist libertarian. I've always been kind of opposed to war and I'm opposed to the neocon types that constantly get us into these type of conflagrations. It's it's pretty stunning to see how he's re, re, remodeling himself in order to fit into the new independent platform man type of persona that uh, looks like he is really a, a free spirit and independent thinker. But without going back and maybe apologizing for his past stances, just sort of like brushing them aside and saying, no, that really never, that never happened. I was never that person. So he is in full gaslighting mode. But I think we should also point out here, his audience already, even though Twitter views on the stuff that he's putting out does not equate to like actual watches because you're talking about like a matter of seconds. And if people scroll past him on their feed, that counts as a, as a view. So everybody's trying to say, oh, see, Tucker's already got, you know, tens of millions of you. No, he doesn't. But he probably has millions and he's probably going to get millions more. And whatever this nonsense he's going to do to put together this sort of like independent platform, whether it's maybe it's partially with Rumble, maybe it's partially with, with you know, some sort of like unholy alliance with Daily Wire, maybe it's just starting his own thing and maybe it's partnering up with Elon Musk. It's all very fuzzy. And he's he's kind of boxed in a little bit at this moment, I think by the whatever legal hold Fox News might have on him. Because remember, the only thing he's not saying directly, like saying the words is criticizing Fox News. He just won't go after Rupert Murdoch. And he's staying away from the children as well. So that's kind of a curious thing, but there's no question that he's trying to paint himself that this ultimate insider fuckboy who has supported every evil deed that the United States has ever done is trying to paint himself as some sort of ideological outsider and now the ultimate truth teller who is inside the belly of the beast fighting against it and now he's set free. He, he was the belly of the beast, so really interesting stuff. Check out Media Roots. I think you'll dig it. Uh, and of course, if you're not following Abby Martin, uh, who has done some really explosive work on uh, most recently, the last couple of years, Venezuela, uh, and uh, for several years now, uh, some really deep dive, great work on Palestine. Check her out. Uh, she's not everybody's cup of tea, but she is certainly uh, one of my favorite. So, hoo-ha! With that said, why don't we 
get into some general emails. And I think, oh, I'm going to kick it off because of the order of things here. So I'm going to start with Charla, who said, this might be helpful when you're preparing for a Kissinger episode. He's still contributing to the world and the interview is intense. Uh, so Charla shared a, an interview with uh, Kissinger in The Economist, which is Kissinger explains how to avoid World War III. Uh, the upshot of the article, which I read about the first half of before we came in here today, is Kissinger basically saying that we have 10 years to kind of defuse the bomb that is the U.S.-China relationship that is going very, very south with both sides accusing the other of trying to destroy, you know, their very existence and their economies and, and you know, anyway. So <laughs> it's interesting because I don't entirely, so it's an interview, so that's fine. So this is Kissinger's words. I don't entirely trust The Economist from their perspective, just like I don't, I don't wholeheartedly trust I like the Economist podcast because they go for straightforward reporting and they t they tackle issues and they're and they're very tight, they're very condensed, and they're usually just very uh, academic in their approach. Anytime you get into the opinion pages, or you start to see some sort of like genuine like philosophical bent of the Economist. I feel the same way I do when I read foreign policy. You just have to take it all kind of with a grain of salt. In this case, this is just Kissinger being Kissinger and talking about his experience. Who would know better about creating war? and generating the conditions for war and, and continual war than Henry Kissinger. So in that sense, I, I guess his, his, his ideas are valid. But one thing to go back and remember is that uh, Kissinger, along with um, David Rockefeller and some other crucial members of the Trilateral Commission, made fortunes opening up trade relations with China. So, it, you know, this is kind of like a, a, a moral relativist argument about like, well, can you get good information from a really bad person and have it be okay? I, I suppose so. It drives me, you know, sort of to the brink when when you think about the fact that we're still interviewing him as, as an expert. Because if you do, oh, actually, Behind the Bastards did a great, like, two or three-part series on Kissinger. And it's, first of all, it's lights out funny, but it's also, like, horrifying to find out who he was and how few qualifications he had to actually be in the positions of power and influence that he was in. We talk about right place, right time, and and just sort of the right mix of political acumen to be able to work his way into these type of situations. But man, what a terrible, terrible, terrible human being. Awful. And then his, you know, his works kind of bore that out. He's, he did terrible things to the world. So I would ignore it, Charla, but uh, I do agree that it's uh, that it's helpful to include this in the fact that he's in an episode of Kissinger and the fact that he's still contributing and people are still listening, which is just kind of astounding. It's another fucking guy that just won't die. Wow. Anyway, uh, let's move on to Nathan S., who uh, has um, just a very brief retort to your retort to his supposition. <laughs> Yeah, so Nathan said, apologies for my letter two weeks ago. I think I did not provide the right context. By no means am I justifying the behavior of Epstein or Weinstein. They both need to be punished for their actions, but just wanted to trigger the conversation that there really are people that cannot control themselves and need help. What say you, 99? Art thou ready to forgive Nathan S. <laughs> once again? Yeah, I just, you know, we don't need to bring them up in conversations of people who actually need help for their addictions because typically the people who need help for their addictions don't commit a lot of crimes maybe like a petty one here or there but you know just we don't we don't need to talk about them in the same vein fair that's all i have to say thank you nathan 
Nathan and 99, for those of you who are just getting uh, to know us, <laughs> Nathan frenemies. and 99 have, yeah, have been frenemies since the beginning and uh, have a great uh, rapport. So He keeps me young. <laughs> exactly. So uh, I wanted to take this one. That's why I structured this order because uh, she, 99, this is not something she would highlight. So Dan H said, first, I'm assuming that 99 wrote her portion of the episode she gave. And if so, more, please. Something that's great about the show is the interaction you two have in post-show musings and show notes because it stretches Max's writing and thinking into a different background, which is very informative as a listener. 99 and I are of a similar generation with a similar understanding of language, politics, and power. I think including this voice more regularly in the episode proper, not just as a reflection after the fact, could lend new ways of approaching the problems and issues you all discuss. In any event, 99's monologue was the best part of this week, hands down. Hear, hear. Three cheers. Well done, you. Thank you. Yeah. No, thank you. And I agree. Lest anybody thinks that uh, I'm, I'm some sort of uh, egomaniacal monster. Ni 99, how's, how's your schedule shaping up every week? I mean, <laughs> I'm not saying that it's like something I have infinite time for, but it's hard when you do, you're like, hey, we're recording 13 minutes. Do you want to write something? And I'm like, could have asked me two days ago. Yes. So it's hard because I wrote that without knowing what you said. Like we both referenced the RFK and like Nazi thing without or and Frank rather I'm just conflating the two. But uh, we both referenced that I would have, you know, pulled something different if I'd known that was in your piece as well. So, yeah, I mean, that's why a lot of the times in post-show musings or in show notes, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, on, I have to like defend my stance because I'm just hearing things for the first time and you've written them and had time to sit with them. So, um, yeah, it's nice to be able to be ahead of the curve and give my two cents on it with, with time for thought, but it's not really the, the way we work right now. Yeah. And, you know, I push deadlines to the most absurd limits here. Uh, oftentimes when I'm writing, uh, unfortunately, my golden hours are between like 10 and two o'clock in the morning. That does not lend itself to um, a lot of collaboration. And, you know, I tend to write in a very solitary environment. Uh, and I'm also pushing right up against the deadlines and formulating things as they come. It takes me a long time to get these episodes together. The, the flip side of that is, as we've talked about before, one of the reasons memberships are so important to us is because it helps us uh, defray some of the cost and, you know, because we have day jobs. 99 is, if you can imagine how instrumental she is here to the podcast, that's how instrumental she is to our daily life and operation. So we sort of have to like separate our brains here and we do this thing. And then during the day, we're, you know, fighting crime in a whole different industry. So, um, you know, it, it doesn't leave a lot of time to just say, you know, especially when I'm coming up with things and stretching them to the last minute to go to 99 and do that. Uh, but when it warrants it, uh, I love doing it, and I love when you weigh in on it, and I think it does add a lot of texture to the show. I said it in the last show notes that this the show, the the podcast, I think became the podcast when 99's voice and Manny's voice really started to become, become more integrated with it. And I feel like it really took off when we introduced show notes as a separate topic and really started to expound on, on post-show musings, so... At any rate, Dan H., I'm always uh, appreciative when people recognize it and point it out, and I think that was an exceptional part of the show. He goes on to say, second, on the topic of a professional political class, I'm curious if another way to say what you mean is to build the political apparatus of progressivism in the U.S. When you say political class, 
Are you just referring to the big thinkers and policymakers who can understand and tackle big problems? Or are you also asking for people who understand campaigning, fundraising, organizing, etc.? For me, the latter elements are more important place to start because unless you win elections, the big picture thinking doesn't matter much. Uh, yes, on all of it. So truly what I am talking about, Dan, is talking about, uh, as you define it here, a political apparatus of progressivism. I think that is an outstanding way to frame that. And I am talking more about the the people who are the engines of, of politics. There are enough, I think, there are a handful of really good big thinkers out there, if we just tap into them more, that can help guide our journey towards, you know, what at least I'm referring to as a, a, a more general systems theory and how we can how we can operate the world in balance going forward and still keep people fed uh, and keep you know our economic systems going. Jeffrey Sachs comes to mind. Uh, Tomah Piketty comes to mind. People like that that we can tap into. So I think we do have the big thinkers. If anything, we have to connect the political apparatus on the ground that you're talking about to the ideas of those big thinkers because. You know, as much as I love Bernie, and I do love me some Bernie, I don't want to say that Bernie strikes a single note, but Bernie strikes, you know, Bernie's working within like one octave. And there are people who are thinking bigger, more expansively outside of that, as they should. And and he has to, you know, continue to drive his lanes. The reason he's as effective as he is, is because he firmly drives the same lanes, bringing everything back to corporatism, to oligarchy, to billionaires and billionaires and talking about inequality. So I think there's enough momentum behind the inequality idea, which is why we've been allowed to talk about socialism, why we've been allowed to talk about democratic socialism, why we've had more nuanced conversations about policy that affects all people, um, as opposed to just the, the, uh, the billionaire class. But there are bigger thinkers that are doing stuff outside of that framework that I think need to be heard. The only way that they're going to be heard and then put into action is if we if we build this apparatus of progressivism. And I love the way you frame that. So thank you, Dan H., for that comment. Now we're on to Instagram. We had April I in Florida. Sorry that you're in Florida, but <laughs> April commented, finally ordered a coffee sampler yesterday. Will become a member when I can. Keep up the awesome work. I didn't see where I could leave a note when ordering and wanted to send love and some hope to all the unfuckers. Oh, thank you, April. Thank you. Where could, where could she leave notes other than that? Well, uh, when, I guess this is good, right? Yeah. Commenting on any of her social posts or joining the group. Uh, you can only leave notes when you buy figurative coffee. Part of me blames. <laughs> sometimes I'm like, I should have just fucking done something else. Like, buy me a beer. <laughs> people would have just, <laughs> the difference, because it's like we've got memberships and you have coffee memberships, but you have a buy me a coffee membership. And sometimes it gets confusing. <laughs> So do you I, love us some coffee over here. Yeah, at FCR. I, I kick myself sometimes for, for nah, doing that. That's nah, all good. It's all good. I think it themes out nicely. Yeah, but <laughs> we need a variation of words. All right. Uh, so moving from social media over to the YouTubes. First one uh, comment that we're highlighting today is from Scott C. Scott C, who said, billionaires like Teal and Musk are relying that their tech security and private armies of internet and private security goons will be able to stop the hordes from coming for them. Pitchforks are coming, and they'd be whistling past the graveyard if they have the sense to understand their own peril. This will not work out well for anyone, unfortunately. So Scott, at least prognosticating that at some point, you know, class warfare will, will erupt. Aren't we already there? No. No, we're not. 
think it feels that way to a lot of people at the bottom. Erupt with pitchforks. There certainly feel oh, eating the rich? that yeah. there's a war on on the poor and the middle class for sure. Uh, but yeah, coming back and eating the rich. Mm, sorry you know? for talking mid-yawn. Oh, eating the rich? That yeah. there's a war. That's okay. <laughs> at some point. Wasn't at you, Scott. You know. I know, I'm sorry. It's all good. <laughs> but at some point, you might imagine that, uh, that, yeah, pitchforks might be coming. Kill the beast. That's what they sing when they're trying to kill the beast with pitchforks. Kill the beast! I'm sorry, I can't really talk about Disney. They're too woke. Mm. Yeah. Did you hear they're changing the lyrics in the new Little Mermaid? No. Uh, I, this is conjecture. I mean, I heard it from my cousin, who I, and I did not fact check her. They're apparently the line in "Kiss the Girl" where they say, uh, "You know she wants you to. You don't have to ask her." Apparently, that's in there. <laughs> yeah, it sounds worse isolated. Goodness. But when Sebastian's singing it, it's like, "You don't need to ask her." Like it's like cute, and it's like, "You don't say a word." You gotta kiss the girl. You're really gonna trust a crab? Shala. That type of advice. Yeah, it's David you know? Diggs now. Ooh, really? Mm -hmm. Wait, what iteration is this? A There's a new Little Mermaid coming out. Where you've been? Another movie? The live action. And Ariel is black. You missed oh. all of this. Oh. People being like, I'm not watching. Why do they have to change it? Little the Mermaid is not, white. I did not understand that it was live action. I just thought it was going to be one of those, like, let's repurpose this for Disney Plus kind of deals. You know what I mean? Like streaming service type of thing. I, it was really just kind of like over here. And I was like, oh, I can't get involved. Yeah. And another. Melissa McCarthy's Ursula. Oh. Which I don't, I think, I don't think it's good casting. I don't, no? She's not an Ursula to me. She's too silly. I want someone who's like a little sinister. She's so goddamn funny. And Aquafina is Scuttle. I don't know who either of those are. Um, Scuttle's the bird. I don't know who Aquafina is. She is a. I, I don't. She's an actress, maybe a comedian. Okay. Um, and then <laughs> David Diggs is Sebastian. Love him. I forget who Eric is. Some white boy. Hmm. And uh, Ariel, I think her name is Haley something with a B. Haley? Joe Osmond. Haley Joe or, Osmond, yeah. or Hallie. Yeah. I don't know. Hallie Berry. She's, it, sure. Honestly, sure. her name sounds very much like that. It's like the sim. It's similar. Bailey, maybe? Yeah, it might be Bailey. Is it hmm. Haley? No, they wouldn't name her <laughs> Haley Bailey, right? I don't know. Hallie Bailey? That can't be. I'm looking it up. <laughs> she's a twin. I don't know. They're like social media. I, th I think they came from like TikTok, maybe. Hallie Bailey. Hallie Bailey. But it's H-A-L-L-E. -L they cast a TikToker in a movie? Sorry, she's a musical duo with her sold. sister, Chloe and Hallie. Hmm. They they begin to post covers to YouTube, so they've been YouTubers pre-TikTok. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, she's 23. I thought she would be younger. Hmm. But yeah, so she is Ariel and Everett and the, the Whites. Not all whites, but hashtag not all whites. Okay. Plenty of whites were um, very mad. And then, you know, you had a lot of young and older, you know, black children and teens and people my age being like, wow, that, that looks like me and being really moved and touched. And, you know, everyone has to make something nice bad. Mm -hmm. So we have to have everything. But yes, they're removing the rape line. <laughs> Although, I mean, if we're being honest... Everyone knows that mermaids are white. Come on. So if we're going to have, you know, authenticity in casting. There were black mermaids in the first movie. So it's not like, yeah. what's the problem here? Oh, wait. Mermaids aren't real. 
I think they could be. Yeah? I think so. Like, if any, like, mythological creature was real, I feel like it could be a mermaid. Mm. We've never been down that low. Mm. And, like, what's so crazy about a half-person, half-fish? Not that wild. I was just reading something about uh, how sharks do the deep dives. They actually close their gills. Mm. So they technically hold their breath in order to do deep dives in the in the frozen water. That's cute. Isn't that something? Nature is amazing. Anywho. And yet we eat sharks. We eat them? Yeah, people eat shark. Shark fin? Yeah. That's like a thing. Not here, though, is it? Is that a big thing here? Um, I mean, I don't... I, Sounds I, like some West Coast shit. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> All I know, I think it's Australian. I think they eat in Australia because mm. of the American national movie, Our Lips Are Sealed, where they are in the witness protection program. And Down under fuckers. Of. Knock it off. Stop eating shark fins. It's not right. But yeah. Just ask 99. All right, Just let's ask go. anyone. Why don't we go after... Um, <laughs> Ian? Yeah, let's go after Ian S., so thanks for the refresh, Max, all good stuff. And thank you for reminding me of Schumpeter. I first heard of him in my economics class at uni. Not sure if the lecturer was trying to subvert us naive engineering types at the time. Is there any chance of an episode on the Frankfurt School and critical theory as a comment on Marx's ideas? Or have you covered that already? One of my, uh, one of my daughter's friends went abroad for college and uh, she came back a little more pretentious than she left. Naturally. So she was back. There was literally like their first break back at the, over the holidays. And she, and she kept saying stuff like, you know, oh no, it's great at uni. Oh, sorry. You call it college. Sorry. And she just keeps saying uni over and over until like they started working that into a nickname for her mm -hmm. uh, because it was so ever pretentious. Uni ever so pretentious. detention. Who? Uni detention. What's that? You need attention. You need attention. You yes. Need, so that's what they should call her. <laughs> that you're saying detention. She also might need detention. I don't know what her, oh, you know. She's, she's a prize. She's a prize. She's a good kid. So the Frankfurt School and critical theory as a comment on Marx's ideas, or have we covered that already? No, we have not covered the Frankfurt School. And I think that, well, it will make an appearance at some point in our socialism series. That's a really good comment, by the way, uh, to bring out. ENS actually asked more, uh, went further on, uh, was talking about uh, the influence of money, the Koch brothers, sort of the uh, libertarian ideology infusing itself onto capitalism here. Uh, but as far as the Frankfurt School goes, that's really interesting because it certainly has a role to play. And, and I, ironically, I think as we get closer to talking about modern socialism and, and the impact in, in America, we'll talk about that. I don't, I'm not necessarily as schooled on the Frankfurt School's critique uh, of the fundamentals of Marxism or Marx, uh, Marxian theory, but I guess more vaguely familiar with how the Frankfurt School helped advance the ideas of socialism in the early uh, 20th century. So I will dig into it more. I think it's a very worthwhile suggestion and it could wind up uh, being its own episode or a significant chunk of uh, the series that we have coming up. So thank you for bringing that to our attention. And now this one's great. This one's great because it, it does serve as a reminder of our very ethnocentric views of the world. And I don't agree with this statement, by the way, or this comment necessarily, but you can't deny people's experiences. And uh, so here we go. I also am going to massacre the pronunciation of this. I believe it's Premzil Hursa. If you are listening and I massacred that, if you don't mind sending maybe a, a phonetic pronunciation or maybe a voice memo, that would be great. 
Premsil, as I will call you, said, when listening to this rather honest attempt to understand and explain socialism, I see why the move of Western societies into socialism is inevitable. All of the previous struggle, Marx theories, falsification, Marx Leninism, total disaster, toppled by the Maoist super disaster, doesn't matter. It was just stupid Russian, but now we are smarter. Now we got it right this time. It's going to work. It's all in vain because the naive, undereducated Westerners simply wants it. It's sad. But you know what? Those wanting socialism truly do deserve it after all. What I can see in the overall discourse is a mindless respect to big state. Everybody wants it. Nobody wants to pay for it. And quite rarely, somebody sees its consequences. So um, I'm going to continue on. But essentially, this you know sounds like a just a somebody leveling criticism against anybody that wants socialism and using the standard tropes of, oh, Marxist and uh, Leninism uh, and Maoism, uh, th those experiences were abrogations of the fundamental thought and trust us, we can get it right. And Westerners will have a superior uh, ability to implement the true, uh, you know, uh, the true fundamentals of socialism and Marxist theory. Uh, and he's basically saying, you're right, you're so much smarter, go ahead and try it. So he continues, because this is this is the part where experience matters. It actually does not matter whether it's formally labeled as socialism or fascism. What matters is that you as a person are forced to obey and there is a state apparatus to force you to do so. Big state cannot do otherwise. Regardless of its ideology, it's a built-in feature. Fortunately, it cannot also stop growing, which at some point destroys the machine. Just it takes long, very long time, decades at best. It took 20 years of my life to witness decay and destruction of once industrial and thriving Czechoslovakia in the 70s and 80s, but then I enjoyed 30 plus more years of freedom. Lucky me. Apparently, I'm going to retire and die once again in a socialist-induced poverty, but these beautiful 30 years nobody can take from me. Um, so basically, tongue-in-cheek saying, you know, um, obviously, Premsil is native of Czechoslovakia, but either the Czech Republic or Slovakia, I don't know which one. But talking about... Czechoslovakia was interesting in that it actually had a thriving period that he's referencing. Uh, and that thriving period came at the tail end of the Soviet experience. So it's a little bit of an outlier in that regard. And they did, they happened to do very, very well uh, due to industrialization and the opening of market economies. Uh, and then, of course, the wall came down and it went into sort of a protracted period and then there were conflicts there and and uh, everything all hell kind of broke loose and now you know trying to put it together as two separate places so i think sometimes we don't actually take into consideration the experiences of people that formerly come from places that were considered to be uh, other than the capitalist democratic principles and ideologies that we hold so dear here that's my own tongue-in-cheek analysis of that but, you know, it's like discounting the Cuban experience because you're fans of, of socialism and what Castro was trying to, to implement for his 60-some-odd years in power. Um, it was also a ruthless regime. Uh, it's looking at the Maoist experience and saying, well, there's certain parts of central planning and organization and bringing peasantry out of the countryside that was a more successful experiment, the urbanization, the growth of the economy, and all of that under the, the the Maoist and then this I guess the subsequent theories after that but that how Mao went about it maybe better even though it was ruthless than the Bolshevik Bolshevik revolution and what Lenin and ultimately Stalin 
uh, did in Russia because at least Mao had a more planned approach over several, several decades to bring them out of the feudal society into some sort of agrarian revolution through to a socialist empire um, and just with, you know, little pieces of capitalism. I would argue actually they did it the other way and maybe went from socialism into capitalism, but whatever. Either way, what uh, Prenzel is talking about here is the centrality of the state, the state apparatus in controlling not only the means of production, but the outputs as well. I think the difference here is that the experiment, the experiments that we look at, whether it's in Cuba, I'm going to discount Venezuela because that's a different situation. But it, we, if we look at Cuba, if we look at China the, uh, under the Maoist regime, and if we look at the Russian experience and then uh, gradually the Soviet experience, uh, some of the Southeast Asian experiences that, that occurred as we went through the, the pinnacle of the Cold War, what you saw was that the state simply supplanted the, uh, the ruling class and was responsible not only for um, the means of production, but the means of the, uh, but the output as well, the gains, all of the structures, uh, uh, cultural, societal, educational, communication structures, that, those were the parts that were anathema to the idea of, uh, to the Marxist ideology that, that was supposed to have been implemented first in uh, Western Europe and parts of Eastern Europe, but ultimately took root in, in the Soviet experiment. So I can understand why if you're coming from a country like Cuba, or if you're coming from uh, the uh, former Soviet Union and you hear Americans and especially young Americans who you think are, are naive and not schooled in this and don't have any life experience talking about, oh, we want to bring socialism to this country, how that really seems like a terrible idea to you. Um, so part of this is defending the idea that we've never experienced true socialism. And what we're talking about is a very different thing here. Democratic socialism or social democracy in America, and we're going to talk about the distinction. Somebody actually points out how David Pakman recently spoke on Lex Friedman's podcast about the distinction between the two. But as we talk about socialist policies with respect to health, transportation, nationalizing certain parts of our economy in order to save the planet, but also to, to provide services to people, uh, to take care of the, quote, general welfare of the population, is coming out of a capitalist framework and coming out of a market economy. So there's so many different sides to this to this debate, which is why we're going to do this series on socialism. But the point to me, Premzel, is that I'm not discounting your experience living under totalitarian regimes, living under the specter of communism and socialism as, uh, as you know, I'm not defending those practices at all. But we have to look at this clinically and say, well, what's next? What systems design will be next that will incorporate the existing structures that we have in the economy, in the in our societies, and improve upon them for the benefit of humanity? Socialism might not be the right word. Socialism may not have ever existed in its truest form. And there are people within uh, the socialist movement that disagree vehemently about what the, what the next stages would be and ultimately even what the outcome should be. So... I hear you. I'm not discounting your experience, just as I wouldn't talk to, you know, I have a very good friend of mine who uh, is from Cuba, but they were expelled. His father was expelled from Cuba. And that's why he was he was here, uh, born on American soil, but they could never go back. Vehemently anti-Castro, vehemently anti-Cuba, won't set foot in the country until all the last vestiges of the, of the Castro family are, are finally gone and it is a free and open society. I get that. 
I mean, and, and if you don't get that, then you're not thinking, you know, critically. You can go, as as I did, go there and look at some of the benefits of the type of policies that they had in place, of the extraordinary literacy about the extraordinary cultural uh, heritage that they have, and even look at some of the health outcomes and some of the, you know, the, the medical procedures that they developed there, their humanitarian efforts, and be like, oh, pretty great society. But then you also recognize that LGBTQ rights have been suppressed for decades. That's only a recent, and I would argue maybe has even been suppressed since, but that, it's a recent phenomenon that they've just started to bring these things into 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 light. So it, everything is so nuanced. And uh, I wanted to explore that a little bit more fully, Premsel, because I, I really do appreciate where you're coming from. And I will try not to be so uh, Western and uh, and so shallow as to suggest that we could perhaps do this better than the rest of the planet who's tried this before. So, yeehaw, yeehaw. You said you want to be less Western. Yes, yes, but well, nobody else can see my assless chaps right now, so that's fine. What about your chapless ass? <laughs> what? Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, Mo Doyle said, 99, as a person with multiple back issues, a car hit and threw me. Good Lord. Really burying the lead there. Use ice, also lidocaine patches. Have you tried those patches? Yeah, I had two giant Icy Hots on my back. Oh, is that what uh, Icy Hot is, lidocaine? I don't know, actually. I just, my roommate said I have lidocaine patches, and then she gave me those. So I oh. just assumed they were the same active ingredient, but I don't know. Did they give you some temporary relief? They did, yeah. Now I'm just suffering. You know, yeah. it's like almost better, but not. Does he also recommend not standing for hours on end at Taylor Swift concerts? No. No, I don't see that in there. Yeah. Okay. And the other the other shows. All right. Yeah. Ruler said uh, Joe Biden's not fit to run what again. What did you say? Zomruler? <laughs> Zomg. Zomg? Yeah. Well, shouldn't they do... Um, Zomruler. Shouldn't they do... What do you call that? Camel case? To, um, to make it easier for old people, but uh, you know, it is capital Z. Well, no, because then you would think it was so MG. Mm. Mm. They're doing the best they can right now. What they could have done was lowercase Z, capital OMG, lowercase R. What I should have done is saw OMG in a row and just uh, let you read. I mean, maybe this person also. Maybe they. I love. Maybe they rule Zom. Exactly. I don't. Yeah, I don't want to judge, or I don't want to pass judgment on their situation. Um, um, Zomg. Zomg ruler said Joe Biden's not fit to run again. We have to send a message to the DNC that you have to pick a better candidate. It's either voting for someone else in the primaries or voting third party and independent. We do, yes, we need a better candidate. We just don't want these ones. That's right. <laughs> we're we're on the same page. Hundred percent. We're not pro Joe. I'm not on the vote third party independent train because you know Supreme Court. That's all I have to say about that. Well, Matters of Importance says, Peter Dow has dipped out as Williamson's campaign manager, which Ooh. is completely understandable. She's a psychopath who terrorizes her staff. I'm a witness. I'm a witness. Jehovah's? Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, that's what they were talking about in the Conspirituality episode, too, about how she's an abusive boss. Neither one of us went there, though. What? Talked about... When you put yours together, when you and I independently put together our thoughts about that, I, I, I think we both deliberately, I know I deliberately stayed away from it. Did you deliberately stay away from talking about her, quote, interpersonal behavior? No, you asked me to talk about her religious doctrine. I know, but you didn't You didn't weave into it and say that, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't relevant pertinent, to right? that. I mean, if we were comparing 
people who aren't great to their staff. Like that's just that, that's a whole different argument. I have no idea. You know, you only know if someone's good or bad to their staff if they're really good or really bad. So, <laughs> so far we've only heard about hers. So safe to say that's not great. Yeah. But I don't think, I don't think on the hierarchy of things that matter, it still matters, but it affects less people. Again, still shouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, it would make me not want to vote for her if I did like her. If that was the only thing I that didn't sit right with me, I probably still wouldn't vote for her. That's because I'm stubborn or yeah. principled, if you Pr want to call yeah, it that. Principled. Yeah. Yeah. In in this case, I think that's that's important. Yeah. Also, I looked up the lyrics to Kiss the Girl, um, and I combined two verses and made it rapier. <laughs> but it's still not great. Okay. Still, st they still didn't. They still implied you don't need consent because she can't speak. Mm. It's like get a fucking piece of paper, Eric. But yeah, I just wanted to, I'm sure there are some diehard Little Mermaid heads out there, which I love, it's like, you know, top five, but not number one. What's? My number one. Wait, should I know this? Wait, number one, what, what is the category? Disney, okay. uh, uh, Disney uh, I would go Disney princesses specifically. Uh, oh, um, it has to be Beauty and the Beast, no? Because she's. It's so it's tied. It has to be Belle? Well, my favorite is Cinderella, but like Loki, <laughs> I love Cinderella. I love it. What? What? What's wrong with liking Cinderella? Uh, that's just so damsel and distressy for you. Not at all. She's completely independent. Her and her birds and her mice, they don't fucking need anybody. Oh they my God, I just had a brain fart. I was thinking Snow White. I'm so sorry. No, fuck no. Ugh. Yeah, I'm so sorry. No, those dwarves, I don't know what they were up to. My bad, yeah. It wasn't Snow White's fault. Oh, she's a, no, all right, Cinderella. She's a, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a woman of her times. Do you like Jerry uh, Jerry Lewis's Cinderella? Sure. Um, but yeah, Cinderella and then Beauty and the Beast are like Belle's like Cinderella's like my childhood favorite, and Belle's like my like mature favorite. I did not see the sequel, but the I would say that sequel? Enchanted. I'm getting there. That's not a sequel. I said I didn't see the sequel, so I can't speak about like the series or what they did with the character. But Enchanted for me, and I don't even think that is that Disney. Yes, is it? I have a very uh, deep emotional attachment to that movie because um, it came out when my eldest was like two or three years old, or something like that. Like seventh grade, I think. What's that? I was in like seventh grade. I Were think you? maybe. Uh, and I we watched it around that age over and over and over again. I Happy just little working song. Oh God, I love that movie. I liked the sequel. It got it got panned, but I thought it was fun. Was it? I think so. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought there were some fun songs. Like everybody's back, right? That's yeah. so cool. And new people. We had uh, my Rudolph was in it. I think was Catherine Hot. No, was she? No, she wasn't in it. Hmm. I don't know why I was thinking her. She's absolutely not in it. Yeah, my Rudolph was like the villain. So that was fun. The only person that's not back is the daughter. They have another girl who plays the daughter. The weird thing is oh, they look identical. Really? And then we're watching it. This was like, maybe came out over Christmas or Thanksgiving. So whichever one. And there was a girl and I was like, wait, pause that. And I was like, that's the real daughter. I was like, she's fucking right there. I'm telling you. And I looked it up and they gave her a cameo. It's just like a little villager. No, oh. but you wouldn't know. Wow. Yeah, that's a deep take. <laughs> Holy cow. I that's my well favorite, that's my favorite game. Like we'll be watching something like uh, when I was away for uh, we were I don't know. We were going somewhere 
we traveled, it was when I was in Portland. We were watching my friend put on Seinfeld and I just pointed out, I was like, that guy's dead. <laughs> he was like, what? And I was like, yeah, he's dead. And the, I double checked and I was like, I'm correct. And then later we were watching something else. I was like, that guy's dead too. In fairness, I have watched a lot of the, uh, there's, there's a lot of uh, YouTube clips out there about all the like unbelievably famous people that got their start on Miami Vice. <laughs> That's the- like Bruce Willis. Hmm. Which is so weird. See him as a villain. Yeah. Yeah. There's also the, like Jack Black was on an episode of the X-Files. Like there's lots of those. Seriously? Yeah. That's he cool. Was, yeah. He was probably in his early 20s. He was adorable. Sometimes when you look up people's IMDBs, you understand like, oh, this person's been grinding since they're five. Like they're so, they just grew up in this system. They're just so part of it. Like how does anybody ever break in from the outside? You know? I don't know. Gotta have a good face as a character actor. Mm. That's the that's but the like the skill and curse that I have is like knowing faces. Mm-hmm. So be like I know the fucking guy, and I look and it's like he's just been in eighteen shows I've seen one episode of them, mm-hmm. and I'm like I suppose if I've seen this person eighteen times, his face or her face will make an imprint on me. But it frustrates me that I can't like scratch the itch in the same way of like them being like a featured actor in something. In the rewatchables, it's that guy. The be- they have a category for best that mm, guy award. That's good. And uh, I think my favorite that guy. Walter Goggins. Of all time. And I don't know his name. Who's Walter Goggins? He's that guy. I got to look him up. Uh, my favorite that guy is the dad in Step Brothers. Um, he's very famous. He, he's famous, but I don't. What's his name? Uh, I think it's like John or something. Right, but he's like, yo, you like that guy. He's very famous, but he's, he's just he's just awesome. I'm he crushes everything. Nope, Richard Jenkins. Richard Jenkins, thank you. And who's your guy? Walter Goggins. Goggins. Oh, oh, he's from Justified. What's that? Uh, oh, TV that show that with Tim Oliphant, who I love. Oh, you want a first name basis with him? Timothy Oliphant? You called him Tim. Wait, why isn't he coming up? Is his name not Walter? Wal- oh, Walton. Walton. Yeah, you really like this guy? No. Oh, you just you just <laughs> it was spot just him one I picked up. No, honestly, I don't even know if I've fucking seen anything with him. He's just real scary, and he has one of those faces. Yes. Let's see, best character actors of all time. Who do we got here? J.K. Simmons. Fuck you. He's amazing. <laughs> I mean, before he got like all, you know, he kind of had a a renaissance. So he was kind of that guy for a long time. Yeah. He's the Until M&M. Whiplash. Yeah. And then all the State Farm commercials. Mm-hmm. Right? Steven Toblowski. That was mm. our guy. Yes. Yeah, we actually Wait. had a... What do you mean? Did a deep cut on him in uh, one of our shows. Oh, yeah. I can't yeah. remember which episode it was. Yeah, but uh, it was just an excuse to play Ned Ryerson clips, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Steve Buscemi is a character actor. Who put this together? James Cromwell. That's a good one. I think maybe they're just picking people with unique faces. John Cazale is a character actor. Fuck this list. <laughs> Guy starred in three movies and they were all best picture. Boom. <laughs> How about that? Hmm. I might have that wrong. I don't know if they're all best picture, but they were all, they all won like multiple Academy Awards. It's in Dog Day Afternoon. Dog Day win? It's in Dog Day Afternoon. It's Godfather and um, Deer Hunter. And then he died. He's like, I'm out. I don't know. That sounds like a character Boom. actor to me. So important though. He was also uh Meryl Streep's fiance, I think. Wow. Mm-hmm. She's a character actor. <laughs> yeah, she's a character. She plays characters. Terrible actress. 
Meryl Streep's terrible. Remember when he went on a rant about her? No, I remember when he went on a rant overrated. about Rosie O'Donnell. He's not wrong. <laughs> that Hot she's overrated? Take. Yes. Whoa. <laughs> Hang on. Let me turn to the incredulous cam. What? Seriously? I'm overrated? not saying that. I think she's rated. Like, she's just, she's great. But, like, okay. I'm not like, wow, Meryl Streep's performance really moved me in Mary Poppins Returns. As Topsy Turvy, her cousin, who had an indiscriminate Eastern European accent. Okay. Didn't move me. Okay. She didn't move me as Donna in either Mamma Mia. I didn't see either Mamma oh, Mia. That's so. a mistake on your part. They're Is it? Bastions of cinema. How about this? In the same way that Robert De Niro had a stretch where he was considered the greatest actor, you know, of his generation. Yeah, then he did The Intern. And, or whatever. Which I really like. You're probably the only one. Really? Probably. I really like Anne Hathaway, and I thought he was lovely in that. <laughs> he just fathered a new child at no, that's 77. That, that's not Did you good. know he's one of the OG anti-vaxxers? Fun fact. Seriously? Yeah, he's been blaming his, uh, his kid's autism on vaccines for... No kidding. You know, <laughs> many, many a year. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Fun. fun guy. Really ruins that for you, you know? The, I have nipples, Greg. Can you milk me? Doesn't ruin anything for me. Oh. Um, okay. Well, he have better standards. I mean, this is a guy who took the stage and said, "Fuck you, Donald Trump," at like a big award show. So, so did a lot of people. <laughs> he actually said the words, "Fuck you, Donald Trump," at a, like a. I love that. This is like the bare minimum thing. Let's get back to the point, though. Um, he said, "Fuck you, Dick Cheney," or someone who's you know been a pervasive war criminal for longer. Maybe I'd give him some claps. I don't know that he hasn't, but let's get back to the point. Uh, so he's considered for a stretch greatest actor of his generation. I think of that same generation. Then you're, you're, she's in the conversation. Meryl Streep, probably a smidgen younger, great, but you know, I would, I would best think. actor of her generation, whatever sure. of the same generation, whatever it is. And then they become so noticeable, so recognizable that they almost become not not in the way like a. Uh, uh, Christopher Walken does like a caricature of themselves, but they they all they become too recognizable in their roles to give any sort of like standout performance that really like takes you out of them in that role oh, because mean, they get too famous. You know what I mean? <laughs> you mean what's his face? Bruce Willis, what he was doing towards the end of his career? Oh, so sad. Unrelated to the illness, I think. Yeah, maybe. I think he was just kind on, of uh, like, I'm doing the same role over and over again. I'll just keep doing it. What did Zach Galifianakis? Uh, he was on Between Two Ferns. Mm. And Zach Galifianakis, the question was something like, you know, have you ever, have you ever turned down a part? <laughs> so, I don't know. Anyway. I like the one with Jennifer Lawrence when oh my she God, says so you're good. off-putting and she says you should be off-putting. <laughs> her classics. She's, don't ruin her for me if you have any stuff on her. I love um, her too. I don't think so. Other than working with David O. Russell, but that was before I think he molested his niece. Oh God. What did he do? He do like Silver Linings Playbook. Was is he like? Yeah, was that, that American Hustle. Oh, that's a good movie. That's a really good movie. Mm. Wow, what a shit given. Did he go to jail? No, he just was. No. Like, yeah, if you look on his Wikipedia, let me look. Is he still working? Yeah, don't you remember? I was mad because he directed that movie that stupid Taylor was in. I'm not calling her stupid because she was in it. Right, right, right. Oh, this same guy. Okay. Yeah, wait. Got it. I'm I'm just mm. double checking that I'm not now. No, okay, it is him. I was like, am I? Wait, am I conflating him with someone else? Uh -oh. Okay, well, this guy has abused his actors and his crew. Who am I thinking of? 
Wasn't it called? What was he? Was it the guy that did? Uh... No, I'm pretty sure it's him. Let's <laughs> see. No, yeah, Amsterdam. It is him. Oh. Person. Maybe it's in his personal life section. It is. Amsterdam, very bad. Yeah. His niece filed a police report alleging that he assaulted her. Ugh. And um, he confirmed the inf- incident happened, but told the police that his niece was, quote, acting very pro- provocative toward him. Oh, well, it's her fault then. Yeah. She's probably wearing something revealing. Yeah. So, um, and now he's, and he's still working and has in it a whole Wikipedia subsection of abusive actors and crew. So mm. I don't know how much Jennifer Lawrence knew about that, but. Okay. That's the only thing I can think of. All right. You know, but I have no beef with her. Oh, I adore her. There you go. I'm glad. Okay. Darren Papa is our last one, I think. Doran. Doran. Before we get into donations. So Doran Papa said, good brief summary of Marx, but he did not believe in a gradual evolution of capitalism into socialism. He was talking about class struggle is being necessary because the bourgeoisie will not concede their social place in the system of production without a fight. Uh, I think I did characterize it as gradual um, when ascribing that to Marx in the video. I think the infographic did that. Uh, and you're right. He was not talking about a gradual. He's talking about a, a revolution. So um, my apologies for I that. I need to interrupt with breaking news yes. that Tina Turner died. No. Yeah. Oh. Sad. Oh. Shit. Why do people keep dying? And Henry, Henry Kissinger is still alive. Man. Should I check? Maybe he... That's a crime. Maybe him and Tina went together. That's a crime. Okay, someone did her... Her first picture did her dirty. Oh, come on. He could have picked a better photo Seriously. Of her. Oh, yeah. Tina. 83. 83 years fun. Oh. She was Swiss. Tina Turner's Swiss? Oh, she's a naturalized Swiss. Huh. She huh. died... She died in Switzerland. Oh, she's... An, okay, so... You know, the Swiss don't let a lot of people in. I mean, are you going to not let Tina Turner in? I mean... She's been through enough. They kick a lot of people out. Well, they let Tina Turner in. That's awesome. I wonder where they'll have her funeral if she wants to be buried there. Rest in peace, Tina Turner. Sorry, continue about Marx. So Doran Papa continues with saying, uh, then the turn into calling communism utopian and calling a vague greed is the reason why people can't actually construct communism is silly. It's well known in anthropology that the primitive prehistoric societies lived in a form of primitive communism where only personal belongings would be considered as being owned by someone in living spaces, farming and hunting grounds were communally owned and worked. Okay, well, not to get too, you know, John Stuart Mill on you, but we're talking about an evolution from these type of primitive feudal societies into a society that where the foundations in every country were based on market principles. So the one thing that you can't extract from the modern era is the market principles and the foundations, which is why everybody's been trying to figure out how best to organize society around a market. In a feudal society where there was no marketplace, no global marketplace, where there wasn't this reliance upon uh, other parts of the supply chain and the labor chain and all these kind of things, yes, you could build these type of primitive communist type societies, but any, any attempt to do that in the modern era I don't, it doesn't matter if you're looking at the Israeli kibbutz, uh, which I think is just held out as sort of like a, look, we can do this here, but isn't really an example of how an entire society, an entire culture could thrive communally and also live and exist within a, within a, a market system. All communes go bad. Yeah. I mean, and every example that we've had, certainly in the United States, that's the case. Uh, we had some uh, in out West in the very early stages and I think in the 1920s. 
You could look at the Paris Commune. I mean, the Paris Commune lasted, I think, seven weeks or something like that. So every example that we have under a market structure has failed specifically because of corporate greed, uh, societal greed, yeah. um, you know, any, any sort of iteration of that, whether it's greed for power, lust for power, uh, greed for resources, or just to not allow people to live in that form because it is basically showing that there's another way to exist. And that is that's a threat to power. So well, in those circumstances, it all turns into the Stanford prison experiment. Right. I'm, I'm like, yeah. I'm not even joking. Yeah. People just it, there's something about having that freedom and no rules that we just naturally fall into a, like a hierarchy and people end up suffering because we're mm -hmm. going to figure out a caste system, whether we like it or not. Yeah. And I mean, so I guess in, in the, the innate bad and maybe it's because they're exposed to other hierarchies and therefore can point to them as a, as an external threat. So I mean. Meaning like if you have a if you have a, a communal organization that is set up within the modern structures of a market system and all of the things that we know to be about our society today, you have to imagine that the power structures within that communal organization would be looking externally and saying there's always threats out there. So we're going to have to, you know, we're have to have to organize this way and be, be built on power structures. Now, take all of that away. So there's no external influences. You don't know what's what's. You live in a, a in an area like a like a very primitive, what we would consider primitive indigenous era, where the culture hasn't changed literally for thousands of years. There are com successful communal societies, but they do not. The only difference is they don't exist in a market system. They don't exist where they have external influences that they can either see and be influenced by, and they do not need those external influences to trade with in a market structure where they're relying upon them and that there could be a power dynamic with those external forces. So look at Native Americans, the indigenous tribes of North America. They all subsisted and existed for thousands of years living in a sort of a communal environment where there were hierarchies very different from what we experience today. So for example, there was it wasn't as patriarchal necessary, necessarily because there were plenty of societies and, and cultures here where the women went out and did the hunting. And the only difference was who was in charge of child rearing at the beginning of uh, the stages of a life. But, you know, you have power, typical cultural power dynamics that were entirely shifted in different cultures all around the world, as uh, archaeologists and anthropologists have figured out. Yeah, we just we've been too corrupted at this point. Yeah, so it's, what, it's like what you, you're influenced by what you see. And what you know, or if you are somehow tethered to that system whereby there is a power system in place. So like, could the kibbutzes in, in Israel still exist in the form that they do today if they weren't some somehow subservient to the greater Israel, the state of Israel? I don't know. I mean... People would just yell free Palestine at them all day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, also... I would argue that maybe that's, you know, closer to Bedouin society or Roma society in, you know, in that part of the world that also was not allowed to exist, you know, because it was it was a threat to somebody's structure, to my land, to my property, to my idea of what a market is. That's my property. You can't be there. So, like, yeah, what I happens, don't really agree with this critique all that much. Dorn, even if we point. had a even if we had a successful, like, communal society from a moderate for like if we could pick up and go tomorrow and do this successfully, eventually someone would come along and call us savages and just kill us and take our land and our belongings and our ideas. So you're just sensitive to it because you wanted to be part of Waco. I know you really believe that David Koresh was the second coming. Mm. 
No? Is mm. that not you? No. Maybe I'm thinking of 101. <laughs> no, she's she's more peaceful than me. If anything, I'm leading the cult. We all know it. <laughs> I'm, I'm in. I'm not. I don't need to. Can I be in? I probably not because if you're if you're being asking so desperately, you fucking believe this. <laughs> I start a show and I say, "Will you do this with me?" Will she you? Starts a, she starts a cult. Where She's like, the, "You're out." Where was the question? <laughs> you're out. Unbelievable. I didn't say you're out. I just have to think about it. Mm -hmm. so you said. Gonna, you thought about it. You're like, mm, probably not. Well, you think, can I mean, can I come? Like, do I want that person wow. coming along with me for the ride? I wow. don't know. Just wow. In all honesty, I probably wouldn't want me either because I don't have many useful skills. You've got that like really long iron stick. I do. It's fourth <laughs> could, generation. It'd be useful. Fourth generation to have that iron stick. Yeah. <laughs> Thing's amazing. Uh, Last comment from Doran is uh, also putting Rosa Luxemburg and Keynes in the same ladder and evoking them as being somehow on the same ideological side is deceptive. Um, the context that I was putting them together, uh, I had, I think, Walter Lippmann, John Dewey, Rosa Luxemburg, John Maynard Keynes, people that really heavily influenced uh, thinking at a, at a particular junction, especially in America, as we were kind of grappling with what a what a just society might look at, like look like, was to say that they were all going different places, but they all were striving for the same thing, which is to take this market-based capitalist apparatus that was, uh, for all intents and purposes, failing miserably, along with other economies, but you know, as part of the the global failure and systems at the at that, you know, in between the the two great wars, and they were the looking at it and saying, war. how can how can we take what we have and do better? So I wasn't equating them in terms of their influence or saying that they were uh, even aligned on the ideological spectrum. I know Rosa Luxemburg and John Maynard Keynes are, are you know, hardwired differently. My point is that these were the great minds and thinkers at the time that were striving to figure out something new out of the ashes of what they thought was kind of the end of capitalism. So anyway. Let's go over to uh, donations. The first is 99's best bud, Nathan Surst. Buying three coffees, three for the essays I sent you, regardless of whether you read them or not. And I'm appreciative of the references you continue to provide me for my writing. Thanks for all you do. And added one more coffee for Maria from Puerto Rico. Her loyalty to the podcast is inspiring. And not to be outdone, Maria from Puerto Rico also pays it forward. <laughs> Uh, four coffees, one for Tracushin. Good that you came back. I empathize. Although I listened to every episode, I was behind in the last three. Caught up on an eight-hour flight to here. And then later said, Max, I agree 300%. Did I say that? I, in my head, I was 300,000, but that just is 300. Yeah. 300%. What makes you an FTR really special uh, is the very collaborative experience that it provides, that you engage, and your openness to feedback is a key element. I'll repeat myself. I love the fact that you, royal you, is that a thing? I mean, the three of you, plus the quote, hired gun. I love the fact that you truly interact with this audience in a mindful, thoughtful, and self-reflective way. You learn and self-correct when needed, and you promote learning, which is why what I love about teaching. Hey, hey to Bobby McDee, who's a dedicated and inspiring educator. I love 99's youth, sensitivity, and the kindness and perspective. And I love Manny's punch-ins. Cue the air horns, please. And call out to Newsbeat, their excellent podcast. You have a very cool synergy. The fact that you so thoroughly interact with this community, but it, it is the fact that you 
sorry. <laughs> Thoroughly reacted. And that it of, has ran out of mental semen. Become a great community. My right. brain just shut down. That's why I was right there with you. Um yeah, and this was a truncated piece. If you ever want to read all of Maria's comments, if you go to buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR pod, or you just, I don't know, one of them. Again, like I said, my brain shut down. Um, you can see all Maria's comments. She leaves really thoughtful ones. I wish I could read them all, but... Yeah. What I think is <laughs> I really seven cool... seven seconds of good reading time there. Is we went from Nathan in the U.S., yeah. who touched on Maria from Puerto Rico, who sent a coffee up to Tracution in Canada... And still had time to call out the great Bobby McDee in Ireland. Yeah. That's a global community. Fergusion's right like the person if you're at Starbucks and they're like, everyone is buying the pay it forward. And she's like, no, thank you. <laughs> but also don't do that. You're not responsible. The person behind you could have gotten like $80 worth of coffee and you're just trying to get a simple drip. I love that trick is back into the fold. I know. So, we also so had, awesome. I, I saw on Instagram, Star Lottie likes one of our posts. And I was like. Holy Damn, cow. The, the gang's coming back together. Lara E. emailed in what? from the early days. Yeah, we, they, we you had know, two Laras at we one did. time. People might have strayed a little bit, you know, got on with their lives, but yeah. they didn't forget us and we didn't forget them. That's so. super cool. If you're an OG out there, right back in. Just H touch base. Holler at us. Yeah. Okay. You don't have to even give us money to do it. No. It would help. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Am I? Uh, at SaboCat1829 is now a member. Speaking of members, just discovered the podcast. I've already learned so much. An unfucking believable amount that I had to join. And you know I'm going to read this, right? Sure, I'm sure. To paraphrase Buffalo Bill, would you unfuck me? I don't fuck me. I don't fuck me hard. I don't. <laughs> so I haven't creepy. seen that movie. You know, my little one watched it without me, and she's like, eh, not that scary. I'm like, sure. What? It's more psychologically scary, right? Yeah. Like, I think I've seen the whole movie by osmosis. Yeah, yeah. I know all the things. Yeah. The thing yeah. with the thing and the thing. <laughs> thing with the butterflies. Thing and the, the, yeah, the thing. thing. Okay. So. Robert Quigley, by the way, bought five coffees. Kay's now a member. Someone else is a member. And David E.G. is now a member Unfucking believable show. Thanks. Gotta hear more. Well, you can do just that, David E.G. David Damn straight. Egg. Well. Do you think people like that I take what they write their real names in and I make it something fucking weird? So now he's David Egg? Yeah, I think they're fine with like, it. That was, David put his full name, but I was like, I'm not going to dox you. So you're David Egg. At least you don't. Or you're Bobby McDee. Completely or you're mispronounced. Camel or Simba. Everything. Every ironic handle, yeah, and screw it up like I do. So I wouldn't call it ironic. I would just call it clever shorthand. Too, too advanced for your old brain. That's totally fair. Yeah, That's totally fair. I'm very linear. Anyway, sometimes. Okay, I think we're good. We good? I think so. Coolio. All right, everybody, become a member. Sign up for the newsletter. Do all the things. We love you. Catch you next time. Peace out. Bye.